0: What's up, gang? Van Jackson here. Before we get into the episode today with John Delury, which is absolutely delicious, I wanted to just flag that his audio channel—we can hear everything he says—but there's intermittent flare-ups of of static or or popping sounds or something. It's not overwhelming, uh, but as a, somebody who like edits and mixes audio all the time, it's annoying to deal with. And like, we couldn't get it out of his audio completely, so if you can just bear with that, I think you're going to love the discussion. We talk about the politics of repression, the way geopolitics intersects with domestic politics, uh, CIA covert action in China, right? We, we talk about a cast of characters involved with, like, red-baiting scandals during the Cold War, you know, William F. fucking Buckley, George Kennan, Hans Morgenthau, Hannah Arendt, Reinhold Niebuhr. We talk about realism, Uh, a lot surprisingly great conversation you're gonna love it forgive the uh, audio unsmoothness intermittently that happens and we'll have a normally smooth episode real soon all right peace what's up gang thanks for listening to the undiplomatic podcast the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene i'm your host van jackson my guest today is a professor of history at Yonsei University in Seoul. And although he is a scholar who specializes in China shit, which is the formal name of the field, chances are you've, heard, you've read him or heard him spitting like really sharp analysis on Korean peninsula issues. And he even has a recent essay out in New Statesman magazine about Kim Jong-un. My guest today is also the co-author with Orville Schell of the book, Wealth and Power, China's Long March to the 21st Century. And it came out in like 2011. I'm almost embarrassed to say, because this guy's a friend, that I only recently discovered the book. Like, I mean, literally within the last like six months. And it turns out it's a foundational text for understanding modern China and the Chinese state to go figure. My guest just came out with a new book that... I'm well aware of, I've read thoroughly, we're going to talk about it, and it's called Agents of Subversion, The Fate of John T. Downey and the CIA's Covert War in China. Perhaps most importantly, my guest is a previous guest host of the Undiplomatic podcast, and he has appeared in a riveting documentary released in 2019 called The Nuclear Button. This modern marvel of a man is none other than Professor John Delury. Welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, man. It was, I had to contain my mirth, my laughter with that intro, but it's great to see you. It's going
0: to be fun. The man who single-handedly killed the prediction market segment. (laughs) That's Uh, right. (laughs) my great contribution to the end of the (laughs) Which it literally is no more. So there you go. Um, so, I mean, there's many things we can talk about and maybe we will talk about many things, but the book, I want to help you sell this book because it was incredible and it might be the best book i read this year and i've read a lot of shit this year yeah, don't yeah. don't hold me to that because like i may say that to somebody else but <laughs> I'm a, I'm not <laughs> it's it really is nothing like what i thought it was gonna be this book is not really about john t downey the guy in the title it's not about the thrill of espionage even though there's a lot of that in the book and so maybe it lends itself to like multiple um, frames or reads, but I read this book as like an incredibly timely cautionary tale about how playing geopolitics can lead to internal domestic strife and divisions because of paranoia about subversion and enemies within. And this is not like an abstract thing. You you talk about it very much in the concrete, you know, and so Policymakers, you know they do geopolitical rivalry they think that it will unify the nation but what it really does is unify some portion of of the nation behind a kind of reactionary politics that ends up like necessarily excluding and oppressing large portions of your own population and this ends up happening not just in communist china but in the u.s too and like you show it like you 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 don't need like a theory for this like We got the receipts. The book is evidence, you know? Maybe you read it differently. That was what I took away from it. Just to get us warmed up, you mentioned early in the book that the seeds were planted when you came across a piece of news in 2014. It's like, what Mm -hmm. was that seed? How did that germinate into this book?
1: When you write a book, it's so fun to hear how people read it. You Mm -hmm. know, like that's one of the joys. So it's funny, as far as like the origin story of the book, there is this very discreet moment, like you say, I mean, I, I describe it in the book where uh, I read an obituary, like it's sort of the classic historian starting point. And it was funny. Uh, Evan Osnos, I'm not sure if you've had him on, but we're buds. And he, he told me he read the same obituary and was like, oh, damn it, I can't do like, that'd be a great New Yorker profile. I mean, I'm sure he thinks that a lot, but like the guy's dead, whereas I'm like, awesome, he's dead. Like I can write history about him now. It's your beat. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So it, but I don't, I don't actually have that experience a lot. It's not like I scour the Obit pages looking for a book topic. It really just kind of bowled me over. And I, I immediately thought, like, this seems like so much more. This is a whole book. Like, I kind of saw the book in my head that day hmm. and, like, literally went on Amazon to see, like, had somebody already written the book? Cause I'll just read it if it's out there. There, there was a reason that that hit me so hard. So I think that I was looking um, not consciously, but I I wanted to look at US China relations from a historical perspective, you know, like to do some deep history on it. Hmm. This seemed like the perfect vessel.
0: Yeah. So it might be like the first historical chapter, like after the intro, I can't remember, but very early in the book, you set up how the like, quote unquote, loss of China loomed really large in like the D.C. foreign policy imagination, like maybe even larger than the Soviet Union for for a while. And this is like late 1940s. Can you just introduce this, what this was, what the loss of China narrative was for people who aren't familiar?
1: Yeah, that's interesting that it is it is quite different. That's a good contrast with sort of the feelings toward the Soviet Union, because just to riff a little bit on that, I'm thinking on my feet here, but, Mm. you know, the. In both cases, actually, you had this strange moment, post-war moment for America. And I think we also have to think about wartime propaganda. You know, this this gets forgotten. Fighting of World War II had three big allies, right? You had the UK, and that's fine. Uh, And then you had the Soviet Union and China, pre-communist China. With the Soviet Union, there's this dizzying, like, oh, wait, these guys are our enemies now, you know? And so you had to kind of unlearn the pro-Russia, pro-Soviet propaganda that had been part of the the messaging during the war. Yeah. Vis-a-vis China, there is a sort of um, ton of wartime propaganda that had to be unlearned, you know, because there have been all this messaging about, like, it's us and the Chinese fighting the Japanese, you know, for the for the future of Asia. When suddenly China goes communist, it's like, wait, now they're the bad guys. So you have that. I think what's the added pathos of it, That's captured in that phrase, the loss of China is that it's really a Christian missionary uh, impulse, you know, that's been very strong in um, the Americans that went to China are a mixture of merchants and missionaries and the missionaries are probably bigger in that mix. You know, Mm -hmm. they're they're dominating a lot of the discourse and the image of China. And so. Um the, the best book I always say uh Gordon H. Chang's Faithful Ties is is fantastic on this and, and also gives like a big picture of, of the history of the relationship. But the United States through this Christian impulse has this special providence to sort of take care of China and lead it toward Christianity. I mean, I think that's like the the deep meaning of that term. And then suddenly it's the whole project is lost. Yeah. So it's there were- it, I, it's, it's hubristic, but it's weirdly like. Again, it's like a Christian paternalistic attitude toward toward China. You know, there's, it's a particular form of hubris.
0: Yeah. There's an interesting, I think there has been work on this, but like the way that American Christianity um, became anti-communist. And so like everything was on the ledger of, of God and Satan, in a sense, um, when yeah. you're battling communism, like it had that elevated sense of messianism. Oh, just to confirm... Were you did you study at Yale? Yale yes. figures very prominently in this book. It's like Yale's the yeah. prism through like a lot of this book. Yeah. I had this list of things
1: I'm like, the editors aren't gonna let this through, you know. Uh and and the editor not only let it through, but really uh helped me kind of structure it so that it made sense. I mean, Yale's like right on the border. I'm sure in previous permutations it's in the subtitle, you know, because it features like heavily for the first. Third or first quarter of the book, Mm -hmm. Um, and that's a. I mean, part of why the Downey story hit me is that he was this Yale guy. He went straight from Yale into the CIA, Mm -hmm. Um, and I was undergrad at Yale, and then I I went back to California for two years, and I returned for eight years of the PhD at Yale. So I had spent uh, you know a good chunk of time he was actually in town like he ended up living in Connecticut so he was nearby. Well, I was very focused on China I was like how I've never heard of this guy like this is really weird, hmm. you know. So there was always this Yale and then I I kind of tinkered with well how how deep can I go in the Yale thing and I got really into it.
0: Now I I found that aspect like really appealing because it concretized it in a place of uh elite breeding of, of ideas of of practitioners yeah. of like so many different political currents it was something that made it much more appealing for me like okay this is very there's a there's a there's a time and a place where all of these different currents are encountering each other um and then yeah. you sort of follow them out from yale which was like it was natural but it made me wonder i was like what's the guy what's this what was the decision to focus on yale but uh, it kind of makes yeah. sense
1: yeah it's got kind of, you know the injunction like right about what you know yeah i mean i could Visualize it. And it wasn't a choice like Yale is the key place where all this stuff is happening. It's more like, well, I know it's you're going to have a good cross section of like foreign policy types and elite types.
0: So um, for listeners of the show, especially, there is a big chunk of the book that was dedicated to a group of intellectuals that you called the realists. Yeah, I wonder. <laughs> who, who were they? Who, who did? And like what what made you settle on them?
1: yeah and also i'm really curious to to hear your reaction and and think through again in drafts i should go back and see i kind of named them the realists they are not naturally named you won't find them anywhere else i don't think named the realists.
0: well two of them yeah
1: so hans morgenthau is the like yeah he's a realist yeah like a realist in some ways of that moment so he's one but then, and George Kennan is also kind of an obvious choice if you're just looking, like you you can't avoid him and I didn't want to avoid him, he's an interesting figure. So, um, and then um, the the third is Reinhold Niebuhr, who I found absolutely, you know, fascinating. Uh, the Irony of American History is is the best mm-hmm. book I read, whatever year it was that I read it. I discovered it very late. He of course was the um, you know he he had kind of come up with this notion of Christian realism. Mm-hmm. So realism definitely works for Niebuhr, although he's he's a you know I you tell me, but in like what I read of the IR realist discussion, like I don't see his name that much. You know, Obama gave him a little boost, but it's kind of like he he faded out. I don't feel like people really read him. Yeah. And then the third is the most shoehorned in there because yeah. I love her. <laughs> 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 Who is Hannah Arendt? Uh, and uh, yeah, that again, that was one of those moments of like, oh, they're not gonna let me keep Hannah in there, but she she made it, but um, she's, she's doing such interesting thinking. And I, I wanted to look at like these very strong texts that would bring the book out of just the China question per se. You know, and I wanted to go deeper into, um, you know, kind of the the American mind, like the formation of this Cold War mentality.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: this is through four of what I consider like the sharpest critics of that mentality. Like they're watching it form and they're deeply concerned about what they're seeing.
0: Yeah, it was interesting because you were like they weren't China hands by any means, but. You were situating china discussions within that larger what's the intellectual like tableau or like what's the discourse within like that sets kind of meta politics and like what's going on in the american imagination particularly of like the elites and then the china stuff is not happening apart from that it's like happening within that so like if you go like into the anatomy of like china debates without sort of referring back to these larger debates about international relations that were bubbling up and like foreign policy you're, you're like you're missing something um so it's interesting your your use of the phrase the realists was is loose uh, by like <laughs> yeah. most people's standards I think in IR at least but it, yeah. it's fair I mean what's funny is this can go in many directions like what's funny is that like these realists have all been all these names have been co-opted by advocates of like the foreign policy establishment today and yeah that is those that milieu is all liberal hegemony people today yeah right but the realists are to liberal hegemony as Fucking MLK is to corporations like, yeah. You're celebrating a character not you like the establishment is celebrating a caricatured version of Kennan, of Morgenthau of Arendt you know of Niebuhr is not as celebrated but like he's in there. Um, but y- you're celebrating a-, a version of these people that's caricatured in order to sell your own used cars or like to legitimize yeah. yourself or whatever.
1: I-, I think they're appropriated by both the realists and the liberals or the liberal hegemonists like Kissinger is a big, much bigger part of the, of my research process and, or, or not research process, but like intellectual journey mm-hmm. that I think is fully reflected in the book, but part of what, and, and it's probably why, I don't know when I name them the realist, the realists, um, obvious again, with, 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 it's fine with Morgenthau. it's explicit with Morgenthau and, and with Niebuhr, but, kissinger i think kissinger really transforms i think i took this part out i had a stronger argument kissinger's the one who really changes the meaning of realism in 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 its american discourse and sucks it of the ethical core that i find there very clearly like well especially in three of the four i don't know if i get it but the other three um and that ethical core is a self critical self-reflective one, which I think neither liberals nor realists really want to get into. Liberals don't like today. I mean, liberals don't like the self-reflective part. That's why I think they can't handle the because you can't avoid it. In Niebuhr. It is so, yeah. Explicit. Um, they, they don't like that. Mm-hmm. And realists don't like the ethical stuff because they, they, a lot of it, they want to practice a realism that is, um, you know, kind of amoral, like it's just about power.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So for me, for me, going back to the early Cold War moment, I don't know. I found it a much more yeah, I think they bring the morality back into realism and they bring the self-reflectiveness back into liberalism. If you want, if you want to like put it in current IR terms. But you do that stuff more than I do. So I, I should hear what what gels for you, you know, or what made sense for you reading.
0: I mean, it made sense to me on its own terms like the way that you were using it the way that you were unifying these figures as having something in common i have my thoughts on what that is but i'd prefer the words to come out of your mouth so like what is it that you saw as the common thread among them
1: the common thread in this moment you know the writings are mostly actually during the korean war it's like the the big books that i'm looking at well politics of nations is earlier it's from it's from like 48 to 52 mm-hmm. And the the main argument they're trying to make, although sometimes it's more implicit than explicit, is America emerging as a superpower is a frightening thing for America. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know it is a, it is a corrupting in the kind of philosophical sense of corruption. It's a corrupting um, force. For American life and they're very worried and again I I keep looking at them through to the Vietnam war and and, and Watergate period and I think it becomes even clearer their deep concern preoccupation is with what's happening to you know the democratic nature the liberal nature of the United States and the power that the kind of foreign power policy i mean i think you'd call it a hegemony they don't use that word as yeah. much to them that's like not something to be celebrated that doesn't mean that now yeah you know, oh great the, the world's gonna be dominated by a force of good
0: yeah that was my the way i read you portraying them and i think this is fair even though it is challenging to people who've like read some of these authors superficially it really is mm-hmm. that like they are anti-primacists. They're anti-triumphalist, right? And Mm -hmm. that is what... They are anti-liberal to that extent, or like in that sense. And they really Mm -hmm. saw dangers in what we would call now like hegemonic projects, you know? And it wasn't that they were like isolationists. It wasn't that they were trying to like be anti-internationalist or something like that is that they had their own view about like the scope or the conditions for venturing out abroad, being very wary of like this triumphalist overreach type stuff. Um, That was my, that was my read of you reading them, which I, I feel like is faithful to what, actually was.
1: And, and what also makes them, I think, compelling is how you you can't accuse this group of, you know, being apologists or, or naive. I mean, Hannah Arendt is not naive about, about Stalin. Yeah. Hans They're Morgan, all very uh, anti-communist. Is not, yeah. Yeah. It's not naive about I mean, the idea that they're naive about totalitarianism is laughable. They've literally, you know, like barely escaped with their lives from from Europe and had seen what had happened. The other thing and here's where I don't know, I can see in in 30 years, if some Ph.D. student, you know, comes across this book, um, they might be like, oh, this is such a like Trump era book. Um, but <laughs> there's this German connection with all of them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And. um their, you know the the lesson of of weimar germany and the fact that it was a democracy that gives birth to i mean uh, that's fair but that hitler takes over you know that was very um that was very present in their minds mm-hmm. and again that's shaping the way that shapes their anxiety about the united states uh because they didn't take it for granted like i think their, their dose of exceptionalism was pretty weak, you know, and they didn't, they, they, they treasured what it was, but they also saw it as like much more fragile, I think than a lot of the people around them. And so that has some obvious uh, current (laughs) relevance.
0: Yeah. It's interesting too. Like, you don't, you don't necessarily go here, but within the political climate of, of deep anti-communism, red baiting, in a climate of like McCarthyist kind of fear-mongering stuff, there's actually only a narrow space within political discourse where you can argue against a kind of primacist, like global empire position. I mean, like the, the deck was stacked in favor of like default Dean Atchisonism, you know? And that, so like it, A, it took like a certain amount of political courage to stake out an alternative position and to be like consistent and vocal about it. But B, like they were among, it's, I I almost think it's not accidental that they were among some of the most influential thinkers of the day because like surely everybody's not on board with fucking, you know, global primacy, preventive war posture on the other superpower. Like it was some military, heavily militarized shit. And it was scary as fuck. And there was not a lot of room to push back. But then you have these people who have street cred as anti-fascist, anti-communist, whatever, anti-totalitarians. And they're the ones who are sort of staking out that position and being like, look, there's another way here. And they come at it from different angles. You point out they have like different academic groundings or orientations, but they all come to that common conclusion about like fear of where this rivalry stuff could lead.
1: Yeah. Although as you say that the question of their influence at the time, I mean, that's always a tricky one, you know, uh, and it's easy, especially with kind of big names. I mean, these ultimately are like big figures in, in American. Even still.
0: uh, (laughs) Yeah. I wonder like Kenan in particular, if he didn't hit that celebrity fucking status with the long telegram and like if he didn't have yeah. if he wasn't the poster child for containment as like the er foreign policy doctrine or whatever for the paradigm, like would this guy even have had a career after the yeah. like with his ambivalences and his his own um internal anguishes? I don't you know like
1: I, you might not have even gotten that ambassador to Yugoslavia position. Yeah. You know?
0: <laughs> <laughs> um so actually there's there's some contradictions in these realist positions I want to talk about later. But um before we do that, George Kennan and Walter Lippmann kind of had a beef, or like Lippmann had a beef with Kennan. Kennan's containment posture that he was advocating, you point out, I think correctly, that he understood what he was advocating as a form of, of restraint. It was like mm-hmm. th- this is the the limit this is the outer bound of what our foreign policy should be trying to push right mm-hmm. and in that sense it was an alternative to global domination it was an alternative to preventive nuclear war which was like on the table on the joint mm-hmm. chiefs of staff in the 50s so like even though that's the case a uh, containment did not get implemented the way that he imagined it like fucking at all but b the way Kennan saw containment was not how Lipman interpreted Kennan. So, like, what right. was the Lipman beef?
1: So Lipman, he, he did a series of articles, and then it comes out as a book. And it's like, kind of, its claim to fame is I think it's the first time Cold War is used in the title of a publication, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and he had a big platform at the time. I, I don't know if he's like the Tom Friedman of his day or maybe there's That's a very
0: good say. comparison. Yes. <laughs> you know?
1: but his he, i found it pretty compelling like his critique of he seemed to be on the right side of this one his critique of of Kenan and the doctrine of containment is like we can't do this you know we can't run around the world like fighting every moment of unfreedom like that's totally unrealistic and um that that's kind of what it boils down to you yeah. know and then the, the, the complication i guess is that Kennan comes out and says you know, I agree with you, that's not what I meant, you know, like, mm-hmm. they are misinterpreting uh, my, my article, you know, my memo, my article, like, I agree with you. And so, um, but as you said, it it speaks to, I think it actually speaks to uh, a deep ambivalence within Kenan himself, you know, like, mm. uh, the other thing that, that in retrospect, I'm like, mm, did I, did I kind of get that right? Like, Kenan's important to my story. And would come up a lot because of his very influential role in the creation of you know the covert action mm-hmm. and what was called political warfare like he he both wrote the key memo internally this was uh he he was as a bureaucrat you know a very effective high level bureaucrat that underestimates it i mean he's in the small group who's like hey we got to start doing this stuff you know the the Brits did it and it's our turn now, mm-hmm. you know, and, and then there, the big test case is Italy. And, uh, you know, through the CIA, uh, the U S government, I want to be very clear. Cause there's, cause overall there's, I think a lot of misimpressions that like the CIA does all this stuff on its own. Like one thing that was really striking to me about reading through these documents, I've had very few cases where the CIA is like, going off on its own you know like the cia is being told what to do yeah. by the u.s
0: government. they're not rogue yeah
1: no no um not in the stuff uh overwhelmingly that i saw and was looking at but so you know Kenan is telling the cia like go get in there mm-hmm. um on, on behalf of the state department with full again with everyone signed off and so um you know italy is the test case of, um, interfering in, in the election and, uh, in order to prevent the Italian communist party from winning the parliamentary elections of 1948. And then he writes a memo, like, this is great. This totally worked, you know, like no one dies, no one gets hurt. It, it remains a democracy. Uh, but we make sure the commies don't get power.
0: Mm Uh, so like, he they did then, that all over the world eventually
1: yeah and then, and then it's very typical Kenan. Kind of like he later says like oh it's, it's bad you know it was a bad idea Oops. <laughs> it's kind of <laughs>
0: it's horses of out, out of the barn kind of... yeah okay um so you have a second cast of characters or like a cluster of people who are like way less well known than the realists yes. the, the china hands so owen yeah. Lattimore, john fairbanks mm-hmm. who still has a little bit of of name recognition and then mm-hmm. uh David Nelson Rowe. So who Rao. who were these oh round motherfucker. So um, <laughs> just wait till we get to Carson <laughs> Chang. Um so <laughs> is that how you say it? Yeah. Okay, well there we go. Um so who really are these <laughs> Yeah. We're sorry, who who were these China hands? Like how do they relate yeah. to each other? Yeah.
1: You're right. They're definitely a, a, a run or two or three down the the ladder of uh, um, recognition. But they would well, Fairbank, John Fairbank is household name. You know, to right, like anyone who studies China, in- including in China, like he's known by his Chinese oh, name, well know known that. in yeah. yeah. So the thing about Fairbank is he's he's not so much read anymore his history books in fact i was just listening to this podcast uh, that's that's a it's a new podcast it's really cool it's on like chinese history books that no one reads anymore but everyone kind of references or like maybe you had to what's read it them called in, that's
0: fascinating it's called it's called old china books i think it's, it's oh, a lot of fun very clever but, and they had one on fairbank
1: you know and his classic like basically his dissertation first monograph that like made him and got him the position at harvard which he held down You know, he's like Harvard's modern China historian from, you know, whatever it is, the 40s through to like, I don't know, when did he retire, like late 80s? You know how Mm -hmm. these guys hang on. So he has a profound influence on the field through Harvard. And he was a great builder. He used that platform. So Fairbank of this group is actually uh, known in the in the China studies world, not really read. I found him utterly fascinating. In this moment, as as a historical figure, because you know he's got his finger in a lot of stuff at the time, um, and then he kind of gets burned, and he gets he gets rightfully scared by McCarthyism, and and kind of retreats. But he's quite involved. Um, so is uh, Owen Lattimore, and so is the the man I've rescued from total obscurity, uh, even getting people to pronounce his name right david nelson rao r-o-w-e like these guys are all um uh you know the leading china scholars kind of of their generation some have missionary backgrounds spent a good chunk of their childhoods in china for various reasons so they're pretty much fluent in chinese fairbank not so but he acquired it later he had spent a lot of time there in the country so they know china really well the these are very scholarly china hands. There's also china hands that are just purely business people or, you know, they could be missionaries but then get involved in diplomacy or whatever, but yeah. the china hands moniker, which some people don't like, it implies like experience of China, you know, knowing the language. So that's why I use it for them because they do bring that into their scholarship. They're also all involved in intelligence during World War II, which is, you know, kind of typical when there was Real full national mobilization of men of American men. Fucking
0: everybody was in the OSS (laughs) and
1: like, faculties just cleared out and joined the OSS at some level. So, and but they all, yeah, they all played like quite interesting roles. I mean, Owen Lattimore was spent a year as a kind of advisor and like intermediary between Chiang Kai Shek and FDR. So Lattimore was like quite high in terms of the US-China relationship, uh, spending a year in Chongqing with Chiang Kai-shek, and then uh, Fairbank and Rao both served uh, successive terms in the OSS, also in Chongqing, which is the, the headquarters, the ca- wartime capital of Chiang Kai-shek, the nationalists. Um, they start to hate each other from early on. Uh, and so you, there's, there's definite like, there's personal animosities, especially Rao and, well, you got Rao on the right end and Lattimore and, and Fairbank on the left end of the spectrum, mm-hmm. they work well to kind of describe what that spectrum was like. Whereas, based where I mean, what it comes down to is do you defend Chiang Kai shek or not? You know, do you support the nationalists? Mm-hmm. And Route just hangs on to Chiang Kai shek uh, to the bitter end. That means hanging on to Taiwan, that means like full scale US you know, support. Uh, need a treaty. Need U.S. military presence, um, the whole nine yards. It's like the and Marco Rubio
0: of China hands back in the yeah, day.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and a policy of also, I would say, like radical non-recognition uh, of of the PRC, PRC. Like just act as Which if was it's not. Which was the reality
0: there. emerging on the ground. Like...
1: Yeah. Um, so act as if communist China doesn't exist and put all your eggs in the taiwan basket. Um, let's all keep in mind those who don't know their taiwan political history like taiwan is not a democracy like by any stretch of yeah. the imagination, right? It uh, it, it as is as a, a <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a military dictatorship at best one party state under the nationalists and it's even semi-hereditary because Chiang Kai-shek is grooming his son the whole time. To take over which he does so it's like a mashup of north korea and you know every other but it's anti-communist therefore it's okay so that's the raw end of the spectrum and he keeps making that argument um and i i found him to be really fascinating because again i would not heard of him before mm-hmm. literally asking, like huh who teaches china stuff at yale because he's at yale and I'm like, David Nelson Rao is the like political science guy. And he's like teaching all that. He runs the Far Eastern Studies program and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was through that I just started digging up his his writings and even, you know, finding his papers and things. Lattimore, try to be briefer on Lattimore, is the, um, you know, Lattimore tries, but then recognizes like Chiang Kai-shek is a total lost cause. He's mm-hmm. a fascist. Like um, there were a lot of smart china hands who recognized that the communists were going to win and that uh, the americans had a terrible ally in chiang kai-shek and Lattimore was kind of among them um so the uh, those guys also say you know what like we should probably at least talk to the communists to mao and like see what's going on there yeah. and pro you get the dress rehearsal for the big kissinger breakthrough of geez maybe the chinese actually hate the russians you know so that on the left end of the spectrum you know they're kind of making that argument and there's there's a real split within the uh within the like Truman administration about how to handle the China thing like should we actually try to to talk with Mao that's a real proposition uh, basically until the Korean War and so, so yeah, I was going to say the well, timing
0: of this is like you're talking about what, like 48, 45, to 50, 48, 45. Or 49, yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Or 50 to 50. Yeah. And then boom, Korean war. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that kind of like changes everything, right? The the route are now suddenly Taiwan, we're going to forget about all the problems of Chiang Kai-shek about the corruption, about mm-hmm. the, you know, the that led to him being in Taiwan in the first place. Um, and uh, now, now we have to defend Taiwan to the death. And then Meanwhile, McCarthyism really hits. I mean, McCarthyism, uh, it's, it's funny, Van, personal aside, you can cut this, uh, in terms of my, one of the first things that really got me hooked on history was something called National History Day, which is like a competition for kids. Uh, and I would do the performance category, where you dress up like a historical figure and memorize a 10-minute script of was your this own like Last year
0: or when you were a kid?
1: This is eighth grade, okay. seventh grade. <laughs> sixth grade. Yeah, I wish I could do it now. <laughs> I chose for my eighth grade National History Day uh, performance, I I chose Joe McCarthy. So I, there's like a videotape of me with my hair slicked back and I'm like, I have here in my hands the name of 105 I Card King I need to find that. Of-
0: I need to find that tape. <laughs> That's the yeah. John Delury P tape. <laughs> and I looked back and I'm like, how did I pick
1: Joe McCarthy? Like, mm-hmm. usually you pick, like, little heroes <laughs> and stuff. So I've, I've obviously been interested in this guy for a long time. But it was fascinating. Going back to the, the research I had been doing on McCarthy, I didn't appreciate until working on this book how the China scholars were, like, you know, public enemy number one. And actually, the first name that McCarthy leaks because, you know, he start, he's given the famous speech, Wheeling, West Virginia, like I have. Made. And then the press is like, this is, I mean, the, the, the collusion between the press and McCarthy is, is deeply disturbing. Mm-hmm. Again, current residents, they basically love him. He's very effective for a while with the press. And they're like, look, this is good stuff. We love it. You know, like there's, there's spies, there's communists infiltrating this is good. We need names. Like we can't write stories without names. The first name that McCarthy gives is Owen Lattimore. You know, so suddenly front page in The New York Times, like, top This was Soviet FDR's agent.
0: China guy, the intermediary, and in like, yeah. Yes,
1: yes, who so had like helped Chiang um, top, uh, Kai-shek. Top Soviet agent, Soviet agent, mind you. Soviet agent in America's Owen Lattimore. So Lattimore also features very prominently because he shows you just how how the McCarthyite stuff, how deep it cuts into the china scholar you know china scholarly community Mm. he's amazing like he defends himself uh you know he just he drives them crazy because he just he's obstinate uh in in the senate you know he's dragged into these senate hearings and he's just totally defiant there's a picture i had to pay for the rights because it's just so good of mccarthy you know and and Lattimore and i think Lattimore has a cigarette or something it's just like you know this like screw you look on his face you know so um but you, you see through the book how the McCarthyite reactionary politics and uh, these, these very repressive aspects of, of American life, you know how they use how they play the China card and here's where loss of China comes back. like wait a second, how did that happen? How did we suddenly lose China mm-hmm. uh, after Stabbing the you back know, myth?
0: Yeah, like, yeah. It's enemies oh, there within. must
1: be, there must be enemies within exactly.
0: Yeah. So this Rao guy, I have to say like he is everything that I hate about No, I didn't love him obviously. But like he's everything I hate about Washington. Like I had to leave mm-hmm. that place when I saw the game that you were expected to play in order to take advantage of the revolving door among think tank, industry, the next rung up on the government position. Like mm-hmm. there are people in DC who are very earnest Right about the goodness of liberal primacy, there are people who genuinely believe that forever wars are like necessary and/or good, you know. Mm. But a lot of people are just on the take, and it's very hard to tell the difference most of the time. Like foreign policy is a hustle; you gotta mm. say and write whatever gets you the next government job. You gotta self-censor in whatever way is necessary to get the next government job. And like for people who don't. Operate in that space right even if you're like a bureaucrat who's not on the political track Like you may not have a real sense of like how corrupt the ecosystem is But this is this is not like my personal shit here Your portrayal of David Nelson Rao Was this case study of like the problematic relationship between government and intellectuals, sometimes. So, can mm. you like talk about his his agenda and like he had this kind of like sycophantic posture toward the national security state? I
1: think what difference between the the type you just described and Rao? I, I don't think he's self censoring. For example, you know, oh, I think oh no, he, he believes
0: totally... this. Yeah, he believes this shit yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. So
1: it's like he there is certainly game playing, and and you see this is probably what you're referring to in the kind of darkest way where. He is reaching out to um, the investigators, you know, of the McCarthy, you know, the Roy Cohn and the team, uh, the FBI. You know, he's reaching out to the security apparatus mm-hmm. and the congressional and totally illegitimate, you know, high McCarthyite uh, congressional investigative uh, apparatus, you know, in these commissions. You need dirt on the uh the fairbanks and the latimores i can help you with I mean, that God, you know yeah. so there's there's this whole twisted attempt to uh because they can't uh they, they can't pin anything on Lattimore, for example and they're very frustrated like legally it doesn't go well these these in investigations um and of course the power of mccarthyism is just to get it on the front page that you're a soviet agent i mean he's the basically accusation destroyed- is what's
0: damning yeah
1: yeah yeah. but then at the actual legal stuff does not work well And so Rao says oh I can help and they're already doing this they hire uh, you know social science research teams to prove oh. that Lattimore's writings content uh, analysis
0: are... the innovative method yes. of content analysis yes. to Harold prove
1: well <laughs> L- Harold Laswell is is the uh, the god of of content analysis in this stage. And so they're using the Last Well method, you know, to prove that these guys are communists and pushing a communist agenda because uh, these words that the communists always use pop up so many times in their writings. And so you got someone like Rao and God knows how many others saying, I can help you, you know, do this research because these guys, because again, he he definitely believes like these guys are, you know, uh, are communist agents. So I think the other thing that comes up that is, I know something you think about uh, and talk about on the show. Um, I don't really develop this much in the book. I guess it's something I think about too, but kind of the relationship between government and then universities at these ends of a obviously connected spectrum. Mm -hmm. But then you've got think tanks, you know, think tanks somewhere in between. And um, so that's pretty interesting. Like, actually, I did quite a bit of, of work on this Yale Institute of international studies, um, which I forget they've, they've changed their names. It, it kind of stopped to exist. You know, it's been reinvented. Um, actually, it I don't Jackson know what
0: school. It might the be. Van Jackson actually, school of I don't know, this, like,
1: Yeah. But why you know, it, yeah. it's, it, there was definitely like a 2.0 at some point.
0: That's the genealogy uh, though is like Yale international. Yeah,
1: that's right. That's right. And, um, that's an interesting moment you do have you've got like cfr and some of the other kind of oldest first generation you know they're kind of world war one era think tanks Mm -hmm. but there's a big moment of think tank building in the early cold war you know in the 50s and you kind of see it first within universities you know so these centers within a university like the Yale Institute of International Studies which is actually set up in the interwar period in the thir- in the mid 30s i think mm-hmm. it's it's i looked at some of like why do they do this you know and it its mission is what we we would describe as a think tank like it's supposed to uh inform policy but bring some of like the deeper you know scholarly or academic expertise but not too deep right that's a university yeah that's like irrelevant. Yeah. We need stuff that's like level ready, you know? And so they're building these things, which obviously still exists. Like you say, the Jackson School or whatever, SICE and, you know, SIPA, you've got the, uh, and then, but then you've also got the whole world, which is so much bigger now of freestanding think tanks. But I found that, I don't know, I guess my sympathies are with um, the university.
0: Yeah, Now I would actually agree with, your sort of predilection there, um, all else being equal, I think the university is a better place for sort of hybrid centers of like policy relevance to be, uh, compared to like the autonomous think tank, but it's not for me, it's not so much like university versus think tank. It's like, how collusive are you going to be with government? How dependent are you going to be on government patronage in order to exist? Like that's what drives so much because an autonomous think tank should, should be the, the height of sovereignty, you know, intellectually. Um, But it's the fact that they depend so much on like insider access and Boeing and Lockheed money, you know, it's like, it's that it's the dependency on access and privilege that creates the sort of corruption. Yeah anyways fuck that guy uh, so um surprisingly speaking of fuck that guy william f buckley makes some interesting appearances in this book um it's a cameo for for those who don't know buckley was a conservative intellectual he put a respectable facade on like right-wing hierarchical exclusionary politics he founded the national review how does he fit in to this story
1: i'm it's not like I said it's not like I thought, oh, and I gotta have William F. Buckley Jr. in there somewhere. But I'm looking at Yale. It was relevant Yale.
0: though. That was what was surprising. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah. It, it's
1: it's literally because I'm I'm doing all this research on Yale in the years that John T. Downey, who appropriately that's the first time I've said his name. <laughs> <laughs> um uh he, you know, his years at Yale are 47 to 51. Uh, cl- I think class of 1950, like a year ahead of him is William F. Buckley Jr. Like, I'm, I'm looking around, like, who's interesting on the faculty, who's interesting in the administration, you know, and who's interesting in the student body. And like the student of this period is William F. Buckley, because he became a total phenom. Uh, you know, he was already kind of a, a troublemaker as the editor of the, uh, I guess it was Yale Daily News of the newspaper, you know, and kind of driving the administration crazy uh, and then as a, as a
0: firebrand, but on campus pretty much. Yeah. yeah.
1: And then he published like his first book and what made him and gave him a national reputation as a graduating senior was, uh, God and man at Yale, which is this screed against, um, liberalism, you know, in, in its manifestation as a place like Yale, which is godless, you know, there's tons of, of Christian you know, kind of Christian conservatism, Mm -hmm. you know, in the economics department, they don't teach capitalism, you know, they're teaching socialism (sighs) and the divinity school, they're teaching atheism, you know, it's all, it's all kind of this godless communism has, uh, and it's all about subversion, right? It's like infiltrated our universities. Um, This is what they're teaching your children at Yale. Uh, And so it's, it's kind of a bestseller. And although I, I found some questionable things about how many volumes it actually sold versus how many were bought for it by various uh (laughs) and you hear about it now it does give him a national reputation and there was a lot of fun looking at uh there's a there's a pretty interesting president at yale for totally forgotten now but presidents at yale back then were like automatically national figures you know and so Mm -hmm. there's this young president he's a historian as well whit griswold you know like all of his dad, you know, his dad and granddad and great great dad were all like Yale presidents and all this ridiculous, you know, very typical, um, inbred American elite kind of stuff. Um, but he is—he's uh, he, going nuts, you know, trying to contain the damage that uh, that uh, Buckley is doing, and um, and and actually, I would say in a. It, in a way that I personally found find um, compelling, you know, trying to defend liberalism and like the basic notion of a liberal education, yeah. and he sees the McCarthyite shit that's in someone like Buckley, and uh, amazingly, Buckley Buckley's second book, written with his brother-in-law, is called McCarthy and His Enemies, like 1955. Oh, yeah. It comes out after McCarthy's been totally disgraced himself, you know, and and the, the the stars falling from the sky. and he writes a book saying, oh no, 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 this guy is like the greatest American Doubling hero, down.
0: You know? yeah, yeah, the timing of his Buckley's emergence as a star on campus and then like this his subsequent career, I don't from reading just from like reading him through your text, it made me think like, man, if it wasn't for McCarthyist politics in the air at that moment. And the Korean war literally at that moment when he's a student, those things are like conditions of possibility for his career as this respectable right-wing intellectual trying to like defend and build a movement that has white supremacy within it. I mean like his whole, we know him because of these things. And like, whenever I hear, you know, I, my lefty shit, I study the right all the time. Like I study right-wing intellectual history too and like the the prevailing perception of buckley is of course that he's all of these reactionary things but i don't see a lot of probing of like the way that he was really leveraging that mccarthyism per se and the Mm -hmm. way he was like like he was blaming loss of china and stuff on people like Lattimore too like it was it was it, it's interesting, like an angle on a very familiar character that I had not seen before.
1: Yeah, and I wonder. I didn't do this work. Um, I I would guess someone has, but I I uh, yeah, I'd like to read the book if one of your listeners knows. Um, I, I'd be curious if you started with someone like Buckley, given that McCarthy is really kind of disgraced, you know, for such a broad cross section of the American public. I wonder to what extent the the american right you know do or do not refer back to mccarthy you know my Mm -hmm. my suspicion is like buckley is savvy enough smart enough you know reads the room um he he likes to be very edgy and provocative but uh i wonder i should just ask as a question it wouldn't be surprising if he or certainly others don't go they don't like to talk about the mccarthy moment origins of so much you Mm -hmm. know that would be quite quite interesting. I mean, it's it's um, it does sort of open the gates of hell there. The combination of the Korean War and This is how Nixon uh, makes his
0: career too, in a sense, politically. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's right.
1: That's right. The law lo- I mean the loss of China as well. You know, the loss of China and then uh, the Korean War, which of course is not like no one is looking in the United States is paying any attention to Korea whatsoever, and then just suddenly getting blindsided by this. This place, but the one thing about Korea, if you look on the map, like the one thing uh, your sort of average American would know is it's close to China. You mm-hmm. know, the frame of reference is like China, and and so, and then you get this pathological—I mean, deeply pathological—repressive um, campaign around McCarthyism.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that was fascism in America, as close as you can get. Yeah, uh, yeah,
1: I mean. The- powers of the Senate are being harnessed. And you also look at someone like Eisenhower, who actually I he, he would probably come out of my ledger on a pretty um, I'd probably give him a lot of good marks, actually. Um, and But you look at how Eisenhower, Eisenhower, you know, saw immediately through uh, this will resonate. He, he saw through McCarthy, he thought it was horrible. He thought it was destructive to the Republican Party and to American democracy. He had no idea. You know he was so afraid basically Mm -hmm. politically afraid and kind of didn't dare call him out and he used the just deny him oxygen so he thought the least the less if, if the white house just doesn't say anything about it uh you know he he feeds mccarthy feeds on the attention if he's out of the press he'll he'll die
0: yeah it's funny is during the trump years i was spending a lot of time talking to editors of different Magazines and websites and stuff, um, some of whom were like friends, and it's a very incestuous um, industry. But as part of that conversation, um, a lot of times I would have hooks that would like relate back to Steve Bannon, um, and yeah. get like he was he was the fucking Rasputin of the the Trump administration for a little while, you know. Like even after he got fired, he was doing all this crazy shit with like. Um, Committee on the Present Danger of China and all this stuff. And so like he was relevant. What, what, what a bunch of editors, I won't name publications, but several editors, not just one, at different publications told me that they have a, a an explicit stance. It's not written down anywhere, but they have a position basically of denying Bannon oxygen. Um, mm-hmm. Their strategy was to bury their head and pretend like Bannon didn't exist. And like, yeah. A, that didn't work. Um B like he got tons of of like uh press anyway. Um but mm-hmm. C like he was doing the, it didn't work in a political sense because like he didn't need their press coverage in order to like continue fomenting his strategy. Like it was too self-aggrandizing to say that like denying him oxygen was what was going to combat him, you know. Yeah. It's like a high-minded rationale for sitting with your thumb in your ass. Um Yeah. Anyways, that was a digression uh in your in <laughs> <laughs> was, so um you talk about like the origins of the cia a little bit in here or not the origins mm-hmm. but like the raison d'etre of the cia mm-hmm. in the 40s you know it was pulled in these two directions like one is strategic analysis where you're serving policymakers. With, with assessments and shit of like what's going on, mm-hmm. right? Best advice. And then the other was the clandestine human world of covert action. And the, the, that pull on identity was going in two different directions and and they do both of course, but like eventually it resolved in favor of like doing a lot of covert action. Um, what, yeah. what made that resolution? Like what tilted things in favor of covert action?
1: I'm not sure I put it that uh, conclusively, like resolves in favor of covert action. I I think that's probably right. But the reason I hesitate is, and I'm guilty of this myself, like the covert action is is, is kind of, it's the shiny ball. I mean, it gets all the attention, you know, and it generates a lot more, um, especially in in the 50s when actually the CIA under Alan Dulles, and this is part of the answer. I mean, the change in leadership you get, when Alan Dulles takes the, takes the uh, the reins um, then it's con- which is in right around the the uh, uh, the time of this of the main plot which we haven't discussed in the book. Uh, so a height of the Korean War. Um, Alan Dulles, once he's director, like he's all about the covert action like you know he loves that stuff and so when when the top boss is much more interested in doing that and thinks it's great, then you see that play out for a lot of the fifties because Alan Dulles stays around until, you know, Kennedy, as we're learning, that's obviously why Kennedy was assassinated, uh, because he, he fires, uh, Alan Dulles. So Dulles is around for a decade. And, um, I mean, that's probably insofar as I agree with the premise of your question, that would be my main answer is that, um, the, but of course, he's he's there with the blessing of the whole thing, you know, of the White House, of the national security state. Yeah, like yeah. they they want the CIA doing this. They want a director who's doing this. The the only hesitation I have is that um, you do have all the analytical work and actually there's the, the counterpart. And uh, amazingly, he turns out to be a Yale guy, too. A French historian, nineteenth-century French historian Sherman Kent, uh, is is kind of the the counterpart to Alan Dulles. Mm -hmm. He writes this. He writes kind of the the textbook for decades, actually, on um, intelligence analysis. Uh, I I I forget how I ended up getting it there's this weird thing where on Amazon, this book, like you couldn't find it for less than $700. I, yeah. I eventually figured out a way to get an affordable copy of it. It's very interesting. I mean, I quote it at length because it's a really good read. I'm not sure it's been surpassed, to tell you the truth, uh, You know, improved upon, but um, I think it could still probably function as like a basic textbook for how to do you know, this analytical work. So Sherman Kent is... You know, plugging away and uh, and creating, I think, a really good I mean, he's got his head squared on. Right. And and he's kind of directing all of the analytical work. So Mm -hmm. obviously they get stuff right. They get stuff wrong. But it's not like the CIA stops doing analysis. It keeps doing it. It's just no, no,
0: no, it's it's about the massive scale up. And it becomes like covert action becomes like this go to thing. There's I forget the name of the book, but there was a Cornell book recently that documented sixty plus coup attempts, like covert action attempts to overthrow regimes during the Cold Secret Yeah, Yeah. the secret Cold War or something like that. But it it, it is that is a remarkable fucking statistic, you know? And that's just the shit that we know about. Um, and so, like yeah. that shit, covert the idea of covert action and even some covert operations existed in the post World War II nineteen forties, like pre Korean War. But then, it, once the Korean War happens, it like just really fucking opens up. But yeah, Alan Dulles. Yeah,
1: it's got its origins in the OSS. Yeah, and um, I mean, part of the problem is actually there is there may have been some. It it was viewed as successful, and I think actually historians probably come down on, in what I read of the World War II history types, Um, you know, there's uh, there's some caveats about it, but you wouldn't say wildly successful. But to to a degree, the uh, the World War II OSS era, and OSS combined the analytical work with the operational work, Mm -hmm. you know, so that was kind of the the original design, like we do both. There's the famous figures Bill Donovan, you know, who's still kind of this heroic, romantic, mythologized, yeah. you know, like Godfather of of American intelligence. So that it's the CIA did not come up with that. Um, that was from under British influence from the OSS, uh, and yeah, it was seen as like really. Romantic uh, uh, and successful, these they're called the Jedbergs, these groups that were trained like in Scotland and then multinational teams, you know, Americans and French and Norwegians and flying in, you know, parachuting behind enemy lines and causing trouble for the Nazis. So in the in the specific operation that I was looking at, for example, that was the model. It was like Jedbergs, but we'll just drop them in communist China Mm -hmm. and let them cause problems for Mao like they cause problems for Hitler.
0: I want to ask you about this. Yeah. This is where the third force comes in. Yeah. What the fuck is the third force? And who is Carson so the- Chang?
1: <laughs> man, Carson. I knew basically nothing about the third force before I started the
0: I hadn't the heard research. the term before, yeah. Yeah.
1: No. no, I and it's got a certain nice... It's got a nice feel to it. But I was also like, what? What's the third force? Yeah. It's pretty simple. The third force is... Chinese, <laughs> Chinese liberals, not communist and also not nationalist. They dislike Mao Zedong. They don't think communism is the answer for China. They hate Chiang Kai-shek.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like they know he's a fascist yeah. because they live under him for the most part. So they, that group, which is a, it's, it, it has its roots in uh, actually aforementioned Liang Qichao and this kind of fledgling liberal moderate uh, Chinese intellectual tradition, they are, whether the, the, the word has kind of been around, but, um, whether they identify or not, they're, they're part of that third force. Uh, and so they they actually get a window. They're fairly prominent in the chaos coming out of world war II, because, uh, the U S is, is mediating, failing to mediate, uh, but trying to sort of prevent a civil war, of course, ultimately, the goal, just like in Italy, is going to be to make sure the communists don't get power.
0: Sure.
1: Uh, but they're also they are trying. Uh, uh, Marshall is there, of all people. You know, so you've got like serious American credibility trying to prevent a a civil war. And um, Marshall and these guys are interested in the third force because they know Chiang Kai-shek's a fascist. Mm. and that They've got a lousy ally. So that's the third force. Um the, they end up in Hong Kong. So there's like a whole chapter in the book is basically set in Hong Kong because they don't follow Chiang Kai-shek to Taiwan. Like the last thing they wanna do is go live under a a fascist nationalist party regime in Taiwan. So, but they also can't or don't wanna stay in communist China, so they go to Hong Kong. The CIA, again, under orders, gets a hold of this and says, hey, maybe these guys would work better if we infiltrate them and create guerrilla paramilitary anti-communist units Mm -hmm. out of these third force guys, maybe that'll work better since the nationalists just lost the civil war. Like there's just kind of no hope the nationalists are going to do it. Maybe we should encourage this third force group. So they're encouraged both at a political level. You know, they're they're publishing journals and they create these little organizations, Sub-Rosa in Hong Kong. So the CIA is supporting that. But then it's also like operationalized and weaponized with these little paramilitary teams.
0: And Carson uh, Chang?
1: Carson Chang is the most like thoughtful intellectual leader of this of this thing. Mm. He writes a book that came out, uh, you know, the, the anchor point the action of, of my book is this operation in the fall of 1952. His book is published in New York in English called The Third Force in China. He's a serious intellectual, you know, and he's got all these ideas about how the Confucian tradition culminates in democracy. You know, so it's hundreds of pages of why China will inevitably become democratic and Mm. it's in our traditional culture and all our people want it, blah, blah, blah. Uh, But the book is very much written to an American audience of like, you you do not want to keep your wagon hitched to Chiang Kai-shek. You know that by now. Here's the hope. We are the hope. The third force is the hope. Mm-hmm. So Carson Chang is kind of the the uh you know the face of and the spokesperson for this third force idea.
0: So you talk about how like the the third force was big in the imagination of US policymakers. Like it was a concept that they had separate from China pre-Carson Chang, but like yeah. ultimately it gets sort of applied to Carson Chang and the Chinese uh, third force. So, like how congruent were those two things, like the expectations that the U.S. had in their imagination versus like what the third force was in reality? The
1: third force, such as it existed in in the mind of someone like Carson Chang and in this emigre population in Hong Kong, is close enough. To, as you say, there's this global idea, like there's a lot going on in Europe at the time where Europeans Leon Blum is the most if I'm saying him right, his name, right, is the most famous, you know, kind of advocate of this is sort of socialist, you know, democratic socialism saying uh, like we're neither American capitalists, individualist capitalists, but we're definitely not Soviet communists either. So that's what third force meant in a European context. You know, it's close enough like uh the the where the gap comes in the third force in China so sort of intellectually and ideologically it works and there are these people they're not like a figment of it's not an American fantasy which I kind of thought at first before doing the work you know that this is just a total projection like these people don't even exist this is like Americans trying to find Americans in China
0: the people so that's exist not the, but the wager is bad or like it doesn't it's just work
1: the, out. The, the power that they have. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, the idea of weaponizing it is what is is utterly inane Mm -hmm. and and nefarious and that these people get killed, you know, or imprisoned. I mean, you're playing with their lives. It's obvious that they do not. uh, At that moment, they don't represent anything close to an alternative that you can arm to challenge, let alone overthrow and replace the communist regime. Yeah. So that's where it, it, it becomes you know, absurd.
0: I'm mindful that we haven't mentioned John T. Downey really. What, (laughs) which which is not inappropriate, like based on the arc of what you're, the thing that you're, this is, yeah, this is not the one man adventure story. This is about like arcs of history and shit. What happened with him? Like what, can you give like the, the snippet of that?
1: You know, he, he's fresh out of Yale, uh, trying to forget he ever met Willie met Buckley Jr. No, he did. He didn't meet to my knowledge. Um, Anyway, he he comes out of Yale. He immediately joins the CIA. It's very typical of his graduating class. A lot of them, just like their their dads or uncles or whatever, had joined the OSS. Here they are in the CIA because it's Korean War mobilization, and uh, he's sent off to to run. I mean, he's junior guy, but he's you know he's training these third force agents for uh, deployment into Manchuria, into Northeast China. Mm-hmm. You know, so um at, and then he goes on some of the missions he went on uh on one in august of 52 according to the, the the cia stuff i saw and then uh he definitely went in november 52 on this crazy you could i think you would say hairbrain mission to go pull out to exfiltrate one of their agents spoiler alert the whole thing's a setup and the plane is shot down and he is but he and his his Fellow CIA officer Dick Fecto, they survive uh, almost unscathed mm-hmm. uh, the plane crash, and then they both of them Downey for longer are prisoners for like the next twenty plus years. Uh, Fecto for nineteen and and twenty uh, Downey for twenty plus years, prisoners in China. So yeah. and then he's his release comes as part of the whole Kissinger. Joe and Lai, and then Nixon Mao negotiations, and so that was my kind of new angle
0: mm-hmm.
1: on uh, a familiar, you know, thoroughly documented and researched subject. But for me, anyway, I found it very interesting to go back and look at it through this slightly different lens of, I mean, it's in the news recently, like prisoner release, yeah, and how do you fit that into um, changing a relationship? It was on the Kissinger Nixon list from the very beginning. We got to get these two CIA guys out.
0: Yeah, it was interesting because, you, and you you even say this explicitly in the early part of the book. But like John T. Downey did not have much agency or in or any really like a Yale man was going to go yeah. at that time period was going to go into the CIA, you know, like yeah. that was a respectable thing to do. So like, there wasn't a lot of choice about that. And once he was in the CIA, well, you just lost China. Fucking Korean war pops off. You're the third force is this prevailing idea. Covert action is where all the action is. So like, of course that's what you're going to be doing at the fucking CIA. Yeah. And the operation is botched because it's like not, a good idea it's not yeah. like it's not it's like doomed to fail but yeah the machinery is in motion and he's just like you show him you 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 like bring him back and through the story intermittently and like he just comes off as like this tragic pawn and it's that them's the breaks. like that is yeah. what happens once these games start happening you know and it's like horrible and tragic and like we should properly estimate that and that that was what I really liked about this
1: definitely and uh, that that's really well put I mean the the agents have no agency yeah uh, quote unquote running these Chinese agents you know and and some of them pay for with their lives mm-hmm. um, he at least will have a government to try to get him released um, so that is there insofar as there's a, a, a tragic, uh, I mean, I'm a Hayden White uh, guy, so I haven't, I, I need space to reread it myself and figure out which implotment I've used. It probably is closest to the tragic implotment. And um, although if there's a tragic figure, uh, it's his mom, mm. <laughs> Mary Downey, because I, I found her, what I could, what I could, you know, glean where she appears in the sources. Utterly, kind of fascinating and compelling, and uh, she makes—I forget now—is a half dozen trips to China. She's the first uh, U.S. citizen to travel to communist China with the permission of her government because there's a travel ban, thanks yeah. to you know the wonderful John Foster Dulles um and uh so she makes these incredible trips 58 60 62 i mean i forget the, but and she's going to china like in the middle of the great leap forward famine you know and kind of all this and she keeps going for these two-week trips i mean like elementary school teacher from connecticut flying across the world uh it's really an incredible story and um i mean that the netflix film of this, like I would open with her maybe, and kind of the mothers, and I, and I really felt at one point, I probably the only time I became really emotional was at one point, uh, tears came out of my eyes, like reading, I think it was the newspaper story of like when he finally gets back to her, uh, she's on her deathbed when he's finally released, you know, mm-hmm. and, and my editor helped me with this as well to see how, um, of course it's through. John Daddy himself who's like by all accounts a totally wonderful guy amazingly even after all this and and compelling person but I I kind of for me I and I'll say something about it he also I knew he had left a manuscript behind and so it's kind of like he's got his own story. I'm not telling his story yeah but I did feel like I could somehow tell his mom's story a little bit more and, and she really captures the the human tragedy of like individuals but also families who get just crushed in the machinery of these national security states and complexes and the lying and everything i mean she she has to fight first with the you know against Dulles to get a passport like they don't tell her that joe and lai personally said the families can come visit because they didn't think it was a good look yeah if the family's visiting you know, she can't get a passport
0: no i had under- the same thought like she if you, you portray it as like tragic and there, I can see that uh, cause it's, she's getting fucked over a lot, but mm-hmm. she, she is entrepreneurial in the best sense. Like yeah. she's, yeah. she's pushing, she's pushing, she's like, fuck you. Like she's trying to, yeah. she's got headwinds that are just impossible because it's the national security state. And she's like pushing anyways, like she's pushing through geopolitics, yeah. you know? Um, that was it, her like, what is it intestinal fortitude or whatever, like the struggle, the motivation that's drama, you know, it's, it was, it was yeah. compelling. Yeah. Um, I'm mindful of time. There were two things yeah. that were like very smart about there. Maybe more than two things that were very smart about this book. Two things that like stood out. One one is that, you know, you, and we've hit it in this conversation, but you showed over and over and over that, like violence and hardline policies that they feed, a kind of politics of reaction or a politics of fear and that ends up redounding to the benefit of like fringe reactionary voices in society and the korean war itself is a good example of that like aside from the merits of intervening right aside from like what went down on the peninsula itself which like is probably should be like front and center in any story of that kind but like the fact of the Korean war had some really devastating consequences for a lot of innocent people in the U S and like, that's something that gets completely sanitized out of every conversation I've ever heard about the Korean war. And so like red scare politics predated the war, but the war was this like huge accelerant for it, you know? Um, and then two, you know, you show how human beings like Downey, Become objects, become cannon fodder when statesmen start playing these like games of high politics. And it's just like putting that face on it is a real reminder of like to go back to the realist, like how we become our own enemies, you know? Um, and that yeah. the risk of that. Yeah. So as a closing question. Maybe I'm like leading the witness again. Like, what do you, what do you think this book has to say to people dealing with like, or looking on at Sino-US relations today? Like, do you have hopes that people take away something from this book for the present, or are you writing it simply as a time capsule?
1: You're gonna hate this. I, I just saw you abuse, heard you abuse his name in a recent pod. But I'm gonna I'm uh, gonna surprise you here, Van, for the end. Uh, and quote one of my. Yale teachers who I actually loved as a history professor, Donald Kagan. Uh (laughs) (laughs) I knew that would get you, um, you know, studying Thucydides from, from Donald Kagan was, was a, was a life treat. And he said about Thucydides, the amazing thing of Thucydides is, is you can actually find alternate interpretations within what Thucydides gives us, you know, like he, he gives you um ammunition evidence to make a a a different argument from his own interpretation um so and i think that's part of my own idea of what a historian should do so you know i've i've definitely got unused draft conclusion stuff Mm -hmm. where i draw morals and you know as you know and anyone who would follow me would know i have strong views. I mean, I have very strong views about North Korea stuff in terms of now. And um, uh, I have my own views about U.S. China now, but I do really hope people will read the book and kind of draw their own conclusions, you know, and find different aspects of it. Because uh, it's more it's more foxy than hedgehoggy. You know, it's not like I set out to make a point. I guess I will give you one, though which is um building on some of this some of these last things we've been talking about which Mm -hmm. is the role of secrecy in a in a liberal democracy as our country aspires to be um just like militarism has gotten totally out of control and and we have to find some way to restrain it and are and are failing to liberal democratic countries have to really be careful about how much they rely on secrecy in in government and in foreign policy, and I feel like in the in the period I'm looking at, which is kind of, you know, forty. I mean, I I do go back. I don't write about a lot, but I'm looking at OSS. I read a lot about the OSS in World War II because you have to in order to understand the emergence of the CIA and and then through the '50s and all the way into really the. Watergate period and then the church committee, you know, and you have this, this first real reckoning with like, oh my God, what are we doing? You know, and the Senate sort of doing its job in exposing uh, a lot of the crazy things um, that, that the CIA has been up to. That is a moral that I think we have to keep learning over and over, you know, is that, um, and I see too much of that now. I mean, now it kind of takes the form of classified material. Dude, everything's you know? but, classified, yeah. everything just, is
0: secret. Yeah. And, and I got
1: to say, this is one of the ones where I do. I try not to roll my eyes and I try not to, but
0: I've had it my eyes for you.
1: I mean, you do, I, you do more than I roll my eyes you. But I've had I've had times talking with, you know, government types where it's, they pull that little like, oh, well, you know, if you knew, you know, and I'm like, no, I'm sorry. Like, I'm not buying. I know,
0: I was there. 90% of the shit doesn't need to be classified. There's better information in open source than there is behind the curtain. It's just a fiat thing.
1: That's one kind of small, discursive way where basically you're making a point that they don't like. And so they move Hmm. to that. Well, we have a whole different... Like, if you were in government, you'd know there's an entirely different picture of the world. You know, But insofar so far as people in government actually believe that they're deluded in a dangerous... So, um, and obviously, there's a lot of other manifestations, but I, I think that's one is that, um, you know, there's this kind of allure to secrecy. We all love the spy movies. I totally love them too. But in actual practice, for a country like the United States with the system we have, it's, it's really dangerous stuff and needs to be kept to sort of like a bare minimum.
0: Yeah, 100%. Um, so, the book is Agents of, Subver- Agents of Subversion: The Fate of John T. Downey and the CIA's Covert War in China wherever fine books are sold it's been a blast thank you thank you van this is was- we'll have you back you. we're going to do more shit together i know us yes. beyond this i All expect right. it